Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed your plan of redemption. We thank you that it was your plan even before the foundation of the world. Lord, we thank you that your perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ, entered into the mess of our world. Not to destroy it, which we may have deserved, but to be the saviour for all who would call upon him in faith and repentance. As we look at something more of Christ this morning, we pray that your word would achieve its very purpose in transforming our hearts to see him, to enjoy him, but Lord, to be transformed in our response to him. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you haven't been a regular or haven't been here for a little while, about a month ago, we gave away our first ever mansion as a church. Now, if you're visiting here, you think, wow, what sort of church have I just turned up to? And Adam, who won that, is not even here this morning. What a shame. Adam, if you're online, I hope you're looking after your house. Uh, For those who are not here or you weren't there, we were talking about a four-bedroom, three-bedroom, three-bathroom house, seven cars, 1.61 1.61 acres worth seven mills right on the water there in Noosa. There is the beautiful house. We said, whoever is first to the front of this building is going to get exactly what is pictured there. And Adam came on at the front and he got that exact photo printed on a bit of paper. That's all he got, I'm afraid. But if you didn't know me and think, hang on, I know Steve's not going to be giving away a house. And you think that's totally inconsistent with everything else he would say. You probably would have felt pretty ripped off if you came up the front expecting to get a house. Because there was a massive difference between the appearance of what I was saying and what you actually got. We are a people who by nature, we make all sorts of judgments purely based on appearances. If we see someone who's got a a fancy car, they dress really sharply, they've got a really nice big house, we might think, that person must be doing really well in business. And that might be true, but it also could be true that that person would love to be perceived as being successful, but in reality they're in major debt. In the same way, we might look at other Christians and think by nature of the things that we see them doing, the things they're involved in, the things they have around them, we think, wow, that person, they've got it all going on. I just saw them drop a couple of hundos in the, in the offering box up the back. They've got, they've got all the walls of their house filled with systematic theologies, all of the Puritans, all of the great evangelical works. Man, they must be so godly. But again, it could be they want to be perceived as that. Or maybe they're thinking these things earn their credits to get them into the kingdom. Yet God sees the heart. He sees far through the external appearances that people put on display. Today we're looking both at how we perceive Jesus and how we receive Jesus. We're looking at questions of foliage 
as in things of the appearance of fruit of actual substance showing significant signs of a, of a connected relationship with Christ and faith. So as we work our way through these, these verses, we're going to see what did you expect? What did the people expect in 1 to 11? What did Jesus expect in 12 to 14? Trusting in the wrong things, verses 15 to 19, and trusting in the right thing. And looking at foliage, fruit, and faith. Firstly, what did the people expect? Now, I hope you're not too attached to the headings in your Bibles. The headings weren't put there by God. They're not inspired. They're put there by the publishers of each individual translation to kind of help you, you know, when you're skimming your way through a book, you think, oh, there's the bit that I'm, I'm looking for because the heading kind of summarises it. But two of the four headings in our passage, if you've got an ESV or a, or a New King James, aren't overly helpful. Like what we have here in Mark chapter 11, 1 to 11, often referred to as the triumphal entry. But the way in which Mark describes things, yes, there is triumph on the way, but as Jesus enters the temple, it kind of seems a little anticlimactic. It says he entered the, to Jerusalem, went to the temple, and when he looked around at everything, as everything was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Wow! What a triumphal situation. He got in, had a bit of a squizzer around, and then thought, well, it's getting on, let's get back to Bethany for a kick. Yes, there was great fanfare as Jesus went on his way into Jerusalem. Jesus speaks much in the Gospels of being headed towards Jerusalem. That focus of the very place where he was going to do the central heart of his mission, where he would die on a cross on behalf of sinful mankind to take their their punishment, to reconcile them to God. But the general population of first century Jews had a very different thought of what Jesus was going to do when he came into Jerusalem. From their perspective, they were expecting some great political leader, a military king, who would clear out all of the Gentiles, who would establish an eternal reign on earth. But we see, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem... A very different scenario. It begins in our passage with Jesus requesting the disciples go ahead to the next town, find a donkey colt that's never been ridden, and bring it to him. If questioned about it, say the Lord needs it. Jesus speaking of himself in that terms of as the Lord. In fulfillment of Zechariah 9 9, that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So there is that expectation that, and that connection with the Messiah, the fulfilment of the prophecy. But even the manner in which he came as they laid out their cloaks on the ground before him was something that was common in the welcoming of a king. It's the exact language you see in the inauguration of King Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9. And adding to the picture of people's kingly expectations, we see in their chants of verses 9 and 10, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is 
the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're expecting a king. They're like, here comes the kingdom of our forefather David. This is all about to come to fruition. They shout, Hosanna, commonly being used as an expression of praise, but literally meaning, save us now. And in particular, here comes this Davidic king. Here comes this reign they're expecting. There's no question about their expectation. There's no question about their anticipation. Imagine the puzzled looks on their face when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, looks around, decides it's late, heads on back to Bethany. And it's interesting too, the language, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118. We think, oh, this is a great sign. It's speaking of Jesus as being the Lord who's coming. Psalm 118, it actually spoke of pilgrims journeying to Jerusalem, to the temple, who were blessed as they came to the temple. But what we're about to see as Jesus experiences inside the temple is not the sort of thing that he would have been sharing as hashtag blessed. The people were so excited that Jesus was coming to fulfil their expectations would have been incredibly disappointed. In fact, for anyone at all time, including now, who thinks that Jesus exists to fulfil your dreams and your every hope will be disappointed. Jesus' central mission is not to give you the very things that you want in life to get ahead. Jesus came to fulfil his mission, which far exceeds yours and brings far more joy and blessing than yours ever would. So we've seen the people's expectations. What about Jesus? These verses confuse a lot of people when they read verses 12 to 14. They look at it and it's, they see Jesus performs a miracle, but unlike any other miracle he ever performs, this is the only negative or destructive miracle and they think hang on that doesn't sit real well with my idea of Jesus or secondly they might look at the miracle and think isn't this a bit odd Jesus curses this tree for not bearing fruit but Mark tells us in verse 13 that it wasn't the season for fruit for bearing figs it starts with Jesus being hungry seeing a fig tree ahead with leaves on it in the distance, so he goes to the tree hoping to find something to eat. But when he gets there, all he sees is a whole lot of beautiful looking leaves, but absolutely nothing to eat. Now part of you might ask the question, doesn't Jesus watch better homes and gardens? Doesn't he know now's not the time to expect to see figs there? You're coming at the wrong season, Jesus. But after winter, the fig trees begin to bud and these buds that the Hebrews would call pagan, people did eat those. So as Jesus saw a tree in leaf, that was what he was expecting to find. He was expecting to find something which was edible. Yet when he got there, there wasn't a single thing that could have been eaten. So he curses the tree saying, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And, 
the disciples heard it. Is Jesus just cracked the sands because he was hungry or hangry? Goes along to this tree expecting to find something to satisfy his hunger. He's not there, so he cracks and says, man, you curse you tree, you're never going to bear fruit ever again. Is it like if you've got a big, massive hungering for nuggets, you went down to Macca's and you, you make your order and they say, sorry, we've run out, and you say, that's it, I'm burning this place down. Jesus hasn't responded in anger. The whole event is a physical and visible parable for the benefit of the disciples. And the central point is, not everything that appears to be fruitful is as it seems. In fact, verses 12 to 26, kind of like a parabolic sandwich, parabolic sanger, where right in the middle we have the encounter of Jesus clearing out the temple, wrapped between Jesus' visual identification of this tree that bears no fruit, his cursing of it, and seeing that it does indeed wither. That central event of clearing out the temple explained by the cursing of the fig tree and its meaning. And note that Mark says, verse 14, the disciples heard it. They took note. Jesus cares not about the appearance, but Jesus cares whether or not something produces fruit. That was his expectation. Now, if that tree was in your yard and you depended on it for fruit, for your food is your source of food, you would die because it's never going to produce fruit. It's not something you're going to place your trust in and rely upon. And now as Jesus comes to the temple, that beautiful, lavish temple, the central focus of Judaism where the priests were, the sacrifice was, all of its grandeur, He's now going to highlight how the lesson of the unfruitful fig tree parallels in an unfruitful temple. And even shows us how trusting in something which might be given for a good purpose can be the wrong thing. When Jesus comes to the temple, it's not like the language of Psalm 118 of blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. What Jesus saw when he entered that temple was not something that was pleasing to him. It was not something that was a blessing to him. In fact, he was angered by what he saw. He entered it and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. But before we look at his actions and wonder what he, why he's done these things. Let's take a moment to think about what has he just seen? What has he just walked into? Well, firstly, you've got the temple complex. This is Herod's temple. Robbie, have I lost this for some reason? Oops. I must have deleted that by accident. I cut some things out this morning. Anyway, I had a beautiful big picture of the, the temple up there and it showed how massive it was. As a, as a scale reference, it had American football fields and the amount of those you could fit in there was phenomenal. 
in particular the largest space taken up in that diagram is this area, the court of Gentiles. And this is where everything that is going on that Jesus walks in to see. Now this court of Gentiles wasn't just exclusively for Gentiles, but it was the place in which if you were a Gentile, that was if you were not ethnically Jewish, you could not go any further. There are even signs above the curtains in, in Latin, in Aramaic and in Greek saying, if you go beyond this point, if you're, if you're a foreigner, then you expect to die. So it, it was pretty clear cut. So that's the location that everything's going on. But what's happening? They're selling animals. They're exchanging money. They're not bad things. All of the things that they were doing there were essential for the running of the temple. As pilgrims travelled from far and wide to come to Jerusalem for particular feasts and things, they would need to buy animals to sacrifice. It was a big chore to bring bring them all away. They would need to exchange money in order to pay temple taxes and also to buy certain things. They were necessary functions to worship in the way which was prescribed in the Old Testament. Yet Jesus turns over the tables. He drives people out with whips. And he doesn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. That's bigger than a Dan Andrews lockdown. There's no essential workers at this point in time. Everyone's shut down. It comes to a complete halt. And then Jesus begins to teach them, confronting them with the word of God, saying, My house, is it not written, My house shall be called a prayer for all of the nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Jesus' central concern wasn't the fact that things were being sold that were essential for the temple to function. Up until Caiaphas, these things used to take place a, a little bit further away. They didn't take place within the temple complex. But it was Caiaphas who brought it in and set it up in this place. His central concern was, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. And the only part where those who were outside of Judaism could come and to worship was filled with marketplace and they were unable to worship God because it was full as a market. Jesus saw lots of religious appearance but it was as fruitless as the fig tree. Now the ones who got their knickers in a knot were the chief priests and the scribes because here it was happening in the most holy of buildings within the temple. The people who were held in most high esteem, the chief priests and the scribes. Yet in this very setting, the people are amazed. They're astonished, not at the temple, not at the chief priests, not at the scribes, but with Jesus. The temple was condemned as being fruitless and doomed for destruction, just like the fig tree. And in the middle of this stood the one who was the fulfilment of everything that the temple pointed to, the one who described himself as the one greater than the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one who'd captivated the attention of the people and the leaders wanted him dead. 
I said before, sometimes Bible headings aren't helpful. The heading you might have here is Jesus cleanses the temple. Usually when you talk about cleansing stuff, you talk about removing the stuff which is impure in order to restore it, to improve it. Jesus wasn't here to restore or improve the temple. He was here to pronounce its destruction for its unfruitfulness. The temple and its rituals weren't something to trust in for salvation. And after this, Jesus again leaves Jerusalem, showing his disdain for all that it had become. But trusting in the right thing. We notice that Jesus, when he cursed the fig tree, he says the disciples heard it back in verse 14. Now as they're coming back in again, Peter notices, you know that tree, that one that you cursed, look, it has indeed withered. And they're also probably thinking in the back of their mind what Jesus has spoken against in the middle of the temple. Likewise, which has been unfruitful, will one day wither and be destroyed. So if your trust was in the temple, if your trust was in the rituals, that would shatter your world to think about that. You think, well, where do we go? That, that's the place where, where God has given us to, to worship him. That's where we go to have our sins atoned. If that's gone, what hope have we got? Jesus' response was this. He answered them saying, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the seas and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Now we haven't got time to unpack all of that, but I can guarantee it's not a name it and claim it prosperity gospel. But to summarise in this way, Jesus says, trust God and expect that he can and will do what only he can do. Don't trust in the things that are associated with God. Things like the temple or, or church in our setting or doing religious things. Trust God and expect him to do what nobody and nothing else can do. For those first century Jews, the temple and all of its furnishings, its rituals, all of those design, were designed to lead them to, to trust God. But over time they'd forgotten God and trusted in the exterior the appearances, the place, the practices, the events, the people. Worshipping God is always about God. It's never about stuff that he has provided to do it. The means is not what we worship. The means is to point us to God. So I want to say three things about foliage, fruit and faith. A foliage not Everything is as it seems. As Jesus saw that fig tree, it had the leaves, he was expecting to find something there, and it was fruitless. We don't want to get caught up maintaining Christian appearances. 
doing things thinking somehow people will think that we are more godly or think doing things thinking somehow we're earning credit in God's good books what other people think of yours and my visible actions really doesn't count much for all God sees and judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts you can't deceive him why bother deceiving yourself or attempting to deceive others Jeremiah warned the ancient Israelites of a very similar deception in Jeremiah 7. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. And what were these deceptive words? This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. It says, don't deceive yourself with the things. Oh, I go to the temple. I do temple stuff. Or to put it into our context, don't deceive yourself with, but I go to church. I go to church. I go to church. Don't deceive yourself in confusing foliage for fruitfulness. Don't waste your time with appearances. Trust God. A fruitfulness throughout the Old, sorry, the New Testament is described as being the necessary evidence that someone belongs to Christ is that they would bear fruit. Jesus says, this I'll know you are my disciples, that you go and you bear fruit. In Galatians 5, it describes the fruit of the Spirit, what the activity of the Spirit will work in the life of those who belong to him. In John 15, Jesus says, the one who abides in me, he is the one who bears much fruit. Those who are connected to the true vine will bear fruit. But note this, if you ever go down to Bunnings, you buy yourself a fruit tree, you bring it home, you rip it out of the pot, piff it out in the backyard and expect, well, that's a fruit tree, it's going to bear fruit, it won't. Don't take it back for a refund. I know they're pretty generous with the refund down there, but they're probably not quite that generous. It needs to be planted, it needs to be connected to a source of life that's going to feed it and grow it. In the same way, our fruitfulness depends, as Jesus said in John 15, on abiding in Christ. You try to to produce fruit by your own works without abiding in Christ, it won't do anything. It'll be like that tree that you've piffed out in the backyard going, oh, I'm going to squeeze, I'm going to squeeze something out. Bearing fruit comes with being connected to, to the one who gives life and blessing. And thirdly, of faith. We enter the kingdom by faith, we continue by faith. Faith's not something we did once and like, oh, that's faith done for the rest of my life. As Paul said to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. The faith that Jesus speaks of in here in Mark 11 
expects that God will do what to humankind would seem impossible. That includes his ongoing work in his children to produce fruit from even amongst some of the rottenest people that some of us once were. Those who abide in him. In fact, one of the most common phrases in the New Testament for a Christian are those who are in Christ. That's who you, a Christian isn't someone who's gone through a membership class. It's not someone who's turned up to church. It's not someone who's partaken of communion. A Christian is someone who has a living union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't confuse being in church with being in Christ. They are not the same thing. If you're in Christ, you'll desire to be in the church, but being in the church does not guarantee that you are in Christ. But if you are in Christ, and you truly are in Christ, Paul tells us in the letter of Ephesians, if you are in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. You have a living connection to the source of all life and blessing. And through our connectedness to him, we will produce fruit, we will endure by his life and his life alone. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be encouraged because sometimes we, we won't. We get stressed about uh, our perceived lack of fruit and it is right that we should get uh, frustrated that we should realise that you have called us to, to bear abundant fruit. Lord, we thank you that for your grace while we are still a work in progress. All of us fail in many ways. And as we come to share around your table, we are reminded the means of which Christ has dealt with our sin once and for all. But we're also reminded that he didn't just die. He was raised with mighty power. He has given his spirit to dwell within us that we might put to death the deeds of the flesh, that we might walk in newness of life, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but live for him who gave himself for us. And that through our connectedness through him, as we seek you and as we abide in you, you say we will but produce much fruit. Forgive us from times when we have cared too much about what people think about our externals and cared too little about the life of the, of the inner man, of our connectedness with you and who we are in your sight. Continue to work in us and we thank you for that promise that by faith you will do things beyond anything we could ever expect to bring us to maturity, to who you have called us to be. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord's table. Uh, for those who aren't regular here, we do this every first and third um, Sunday of the month. Um, because while the Bible says as often as you do it, it never actually says when that often is. 